So does your career energize you with life or does it drain you? Recent Gallup polls show that a whopping 70% of us feel disengaged in the workplace. There's just gotta be a better way. Welcome to our authentic careers where it is my job to uncover the ideas and strategies that can help you become better aligned with your career. I'm your host, Gerd Sabar, and I interview people like you and me about the twists and turns in their career paths so that we can all achieve greater clarity, meaning, and fulfillment in ours. And on this week's episode, a super interesting cat by the name of Joe Cooper. Joe has what he calls a very precise life vision for himself in which he actively, like on a daily basis, sees himself as a character in a movie of his life, which to me is pretty darn fascinating. What I love about it so much is that Joe is in effect continuously tapping into an alternate reality, literally a reality that he's painted for himself in his mind, which reminded me just how much power we as individuals have to not only conjure up such visions, visions of what we want our futures to look like, but to then also move ourselves towards them. And my personal belief is, however skewed it might be, is that the degree to which we're able to hold on to the details of such visions is usually directly proportional to our abilities to actually manifest them. What I also found interesting about Joe's journey is just how he got to love this idea and side occupation of hosting events and award shows. As you'll soon hear, it's a love that directly tracks back to his grandfather's party-throwing ways. There's a feeling there that manifested for Joe back in those days, and it's through playing the role of host that he's now found a way to more actively and consciously resuscitate that feeling today. So enough with me. Without further ado, I now give you the lovely and talented Joe Cooper. Excellent, man. Well, firstly, uh, thank you for agreeing to take the time to do this and to share your journey. Of course. Yeah, I, I, I love the idea of the podcast. I love the name. I, uh, like I said, I hope to host one of my own one day. So it's, it's totally a good fit. Rock and roll, Joe. So let's get started. So question number one for you. Um, do you ever think about the concept of purpose or mission or what it is that I'm doing here on this planet? Absolutely. You know, I probably meditate on that too much so that sometimes it uh, you know trips me up from the execution of the uh, day-to-day I think about it all the time I read about it I listen to podcasts about it uh, I was raised in a somewhat religious environment I was raised Christian and then sort of took another journey and you know rediscovered different truths and got away from it so as an adult you know if you're outside of that sort of religious construct um, that type of thing takes a lot more, you know, meditation and self-reflection to get to. So answers, yes, I think about it all the time. Yeah. And where, where have you netted out so far with that for yourself? Yeah, it's, it's difficult. So I, so, I mean, the true answer is that I'm, I'm still searching for it. You know, the, the, the concrete rock in the middle that, you know, if I have to go to sleep to something every night, or if I would be on my deathbed tomorrow, it would come down to, doing things for others. Um, Something about serving others is the only thing I can sort of prove to myself that is, you know, worth living for on a day-to-day basis because, you know, I don't know the 
origins or the future of the universe or the self or if there is an afterlife or, you know, to what all of this effort in life would amount. Um, right. I, I love different theories of a reincarnation. You know, if I could choose any type of um, afterlife theory, I love that one because then you get to come back and do it again, you know, but I don't, we don't know if that's true. So it's something about giving to others and, and edifying their lives. It's the only thing I can really come back to. Yeah. And Joe, tell us, um, what is it that you do today? Sure. Yeah. Um, well, my primary job is to lead digital content strategy for uh, Ketchum, um, a, a global PR communications agency. Um, also part of my job is creative content for new business development. So showing up really dynamically creative in kind of a, a selling and a pitching environment. Um, and then what I also do on the side as a freelancer um, is I am a host. I host corporate events, award shows. I've even done a few weddings, uh, video interviews, that type of thing, sort of on nights and weekends. Uh, and, and, and that's what I really love. That's awesome. And so, Joe, are you today, when you think about your career, are you today in your career where you thought you would be when you were younger? Great question. I, um, I mean, the answer is, is no, but I would say no according to my college indie writer artist self when I thought I was going to be a novelist, you know. Yep. Um, and then at some point in my 20s, I, I had kept talking about it. I tried to write the start of, you know, 20 or 25 books, and I could never really commit. And I had a mentor who said, you know, do you really want to sit in a room for eight hours, eight to ten hours a day alone and write? Because that's what novelists do. And I said, no, I'm I'm very social. That sounds terrible. Right. You know. So um. So according to my late twenties, I am further along. It wasn't until I started doing this writing of live content and performing of live content that I realized, oh my gosh, this is what I'm meant to do. So right now, I am steps along. I've got another few years to really actualize that, but. So the answer is no, according to my you know youth self, but yes, closer according to my adult self. Can you walk us back a little bit? So we um, you talk about one of the things you're doing now is is hosting, and it's a it's a it's a passion. When's the earliest that you can remember wanting to be a host? You know, I think it goes back to parties. So I love to throw parties, sort of. You know, I guess right after college and a few years after, um, I had a grandfather who um, loved to throw parties. Uh, I actually have his bar in my apartment. That's where I'm talking to you right now from the 70s. Um, and I love to throw parties, theme parties, cocktail parties. And that is the same concept. It's the same gratification I get from hosting a show. So um, it, it started at parties. And then in my late 20s, I got the chance to host events for my old company, a big corporate med tech company. Um, and then that was the first taste I got. And once I did more and more, um, it just, it sort of grew that hunger from there. Yeah. And I'm sorry, I missed it. What, when did you say at what age did it start? Yeah. So, you know, it probably started, um, when I started, you know, intellectually connecting with my grandfather and his identity in my, um, early twenties. Yep. Um, and then in my early twenties, he passed away. And then it wasn't until my late twenties that I got to the chance to do it professionally. So it was sort of an internal realization, early twenties. And then professionally, I got this chance. And then in my thirties, I really tried to grow it. So walk us back though, even beyond that. I mean, Joe, sure. Joe as a child, do you have any memory of what kind of the first thing, um, that you wanted to be when you grew up? Absolutely. So that would a hundred percent be a musician. Okay. Uh, my dad, my dad was a rock musician in the Bay Area in the seventies and eighties. He actually still plays with some bands. Um, and me and my two sisters were always involved in music. I was a sax player. In fact, I still have my high school sax in my apartment. 
And my two sisters uh, were singers. Actually, one of my sisters is still an opera singer in the Bay Area. Um, and so it was that musical performance that I just loved. And I was a dedicated musician. And I, you know, for probably from when I was nine years old to 17 years old, I really wanted to be a professional musician, eventually to be a film composer. That was my number one first true love job or goal, you know. And when, when did you have that goal? You know, that was, um, it developed in... Probably high school. I mean, I, we were a big movie family, movies and musicals, Friday night, movie night, you know, yeah. for as long as we can remember. And so that instilled our love in movies and especially mine. And then being a musician um, at school and, you know, my best friend was, was a piano player. I was a sax player. Those The marriage of those two things kind of came together in, in high school. Then I went to UCLA. I tried out for the jazz band. I didn't make it because, you know, those, those players are, are serious. UCLA, USC. The jazz scene in the U.S. is obviously small, but um, you know New York, L.A., um, New Orleans, Chicago. These are some of those those hubs. So those, if you're going there for music, you are absolutely dedicated. wasn't good enough to do that. My other love was writing and reading, so I ended up being a literature major. So you're growing up with this desire to be a musician. How does that impact your time and say high school? And then you mentioned UCLA, but how does that impact your college choices and what happened there? Yeah, yeah, good question. So, you know, I remember being 18, went down to UCLA. It's a huge school. It was 30,000 kids at the time. And I lived in a dorm way at the west side of campus, and the, the jazz hall was way at the east side. So I remember lugging my sacks all the way over, preparing for weeks, stealing these little practice rooms to try to practice to audition for the jazz band. And you, you weren't supposed to be in those rooms unless you were a, a music major. And so I would sort of put my high, a college ID in the window of the practice room, but hide the part that showed your major, you know, I only, I only got kicked out a few times. Um, and I remember the audition, it was brutal. I just butchered it, you know, so I was bummed. Um, I, I tried a little bit longer for about a year. I tried to learn piano. I did a little bit of writing, but you know, the truth is to become a composer, you need to be steeped in piano music theory. You need to have a great dedication for the education of all that. And there is a discipline component that I, I just don't think that I have. I did not stick with it. Yeah, and, and when did you realize that? You know, this discipline component is a part of this, and it's not something that you, uh, you sort of forgave yourself that this is not something that you have. Yeah, that's right. That's a great question, and I think that speaks to the heart of this larger topic of authentic career. So two, two examples. One is I knew that if I wanted to, to achieve my quote-unquote dream of being a film composer, I would have to learn music theory and take piano. And I just I just knew, I walked myself through the steps and I talked to my good friend Alan, who's a professional musician now, he's a pianist and music director and composer, and you know, he said, this is going to be a really hard road, it's going to take a lot of hours, you've already chosen your literature major and you're almost done. Um, and it just seemed too daunting, and I just didn't have a fire inside, you know. Yeah. Um, speed ahead a few years, I was talking to my my writer mentor, who's become a good friend, Marilyn, and that's when she made that comment saying, do you want to spend every day in a room alone writing? And I said, you know what, I don't, and I didn't have that fire that burned that bright, and I think the way to discover um, your, your truly authentic tr career is to find whatever it is that you don't mind killing yourself over and spending countless hours on. In fact, you love it, you know? Right. And it wasn't until my late 20s when I started writing these shows, because this is two parts for me. I get to spend dozens and dozens of hours, sometimes up to 100, 200 hours, writing content for the show. Then I get the payoff of getting to deliver the content in person, and I will spend 
countless hours. I don't care if the client hates every joke I write for two months, I will go back to the drawing board. And that was the only fire, you know, in a career sense that, that never went out. You're having this conversation uh, with your friend about what it takes to be a composer. Right, yeah. And you're realizing that that path does not ultimately light a fire. What, what happens next? Yeah, so what happened next was I completed my degree in literature. Um, I always knew that my, well, and Not I'm sorry, new. actually stepping backwards for a second. Yeah, what, sure. What were you studying at UCLA? I was studying literature almost from the very the, beginning. From the beginning, okay. Yeah. And, if, and, and so let's step back even further. You decided to apply to UCLA. You're already um, you're on this musician path. You have this idea of being a composer. Why are you studying literature? Well, you know, part of the reason is that in order to be a music major at these schools, you would have to audition sometime in your you know, late junior or senior year of high school. Okay. Um, and, I, and I didn't do that. And I don't think there was necessarily a reason. I, I might have thought, well, you know what? I, um, maybe I'll get a quote-unquote more sensible career than music. Maybe I won't put all my eggs in that basket. I do remember talking to some high school teachers, and you know, nobody advises you to study that. They say, well, you can always play music on the side, major in business or something like that. You know, So that's why I decided. I, went to, I remember looking down the list of majors in college, I wasn't interested in anything. The only thing that was sort of a deep, or, or I wasn't sure, you know. So the only thing that was sort of a default was this literature major. And I thought, well, I do love reading and writing, and that's pretty much all this major is. And if I got that degree, and if I failed on the side as a musician, I could at least have a career as a writer. So I kind of made a sensible choice. You know? Got it. No, that's helpful. And so no one um, leading up to college... Uh, it doesn't sound like anyone is is um, giving you a framework by which to right. pursue the music career. Per se. You know, yeah. I, oh, I just remembered. I remember talking to this. Um, she was this very uh, sexy assistant principal, Mrs. Tunin. God, she was great. She was very professional. But she was the one that, you know, there's always somebody, an older woman that, like, the high school guys have a crush on, you know. And right. she was, I remember now we're standing in the quad, beautiful California day, and I'm talking about this major. And she says, Joey, you can always make money. Do the arts on the side, you know, because I have seen people put all their eggs in the arts basket and they have a really tough life. I remember that. You can always make money. Yeah. That's, that's probably why. Oh, wow. I just remembered that. Very cool. So that triggers... Yeah. A change of path. Yeah, that's right. And I went with the English major or the American lit major, basically the same. And and what about um, what about your parents at that time? What kind of what kind of counsel and guidance are they giving you in terms of uh, applying to college and thinking about a music career? Sure. Great question. You know, my parents were classically loving, supportive, open and just very caring. And they always said, do whatever you want to do. Yeah. Um, you know, their counsel was not necessarily as specific as it was, you know, generous and affectionate. Yeah. Um, so they didn't necessarily, you know, they always wanted to see me play music because they knew that I loved it. But I think bringing my sax down to school at LA and auditioning, that was at least enough kind of boxes to be checked where they said, okay, great. He still has it as a hobby, you know? Got it. And um, I'm sorry, you said you, your dad was a musician and your mom? Um, yeah, my mom was, she worked in the education system. So she um, was, she's always worked as sort of like the, the nurse's aide in a elementary school. Uh, one time she, for a bunch of years, she had this playroom where kids who needed extra attention would go and, um, uh, and you know, just play, 
you know, with toys with her, and then she would write up reports. So she always worked in schools, kind of where we went to school, um, generally part-time, and then took care of us afterward. Thinking back throughout your upbringing leading up to college and high school and even beyond, what would you say was the, uh, what impact did they have on your career and your decision-making process along the way, either directly or from your sort of observation of them? Yeah, great question. Um, I would say the first thing was, you know, we were in a we were in an environment of creative inspiration. So I grew up with a drum set in the living room my whole life, um, and I would come home from school sometimes, come home early and bang away at the drums. I mean, and my dad taught me a little drumming, obviously too. Um, so being in a creative environment, it was just instilled. Friday night, movie night, watching old musicals from the '30s through the '60s, you know. Um, music on all the time. It's that creative environment. So that's that inspiration. Um, but, you know, there's there's something deeper. You know, the second part of your question, um, my dad always worked really hard um, and just never earned a ton. Now, yeah. I am not, I'm not financially motivated. I have never made decisions around that. But, um, you know, I, I knew that if I wanted to do the things that I wanted to do in life, this is jumping around a little bit, but it's connected. No, no, it's One right. of those things is is living in New York. And, um, you know, as you know, living in a major city, New York, L.A., San Francisco, it does require a certain amount of income. So, you know, part of what I do every day um, and how dedicated I am to this life is because, you know, like any father, my dad wanted me to be able to do kind of better than, than he did in a way. So I want to ask that question from a different angle. Um, on a scale of zero to ten, where zero is a total non-issue and ten is a big, dark, gloomy shadow – how large a shadow would you say that financial considerations have had over your career path to date? I have made career choices uh, emotionally and through relationships, you know. So um, I have, haven't applied to a lot of jobs. It's been mostly through networking. Um, most of my, 80% of what I've learned in my career, I learned at Stryker, this global med tech company, from basically from 24 you know, to 33. Um, and I was lucky enough to have great mentors and people who paved a path for me. So I didn't, I didn't really have to make those um, decisions about money in a career sense. Now, outside of a career, I have a huge appetite for life. And I'm one of those people who just, you know, I was the little kid with $5 in my pocket and it was gone in five minutes. I don't hold on to anything. Right. You know, there's a great quote in literature about, I forget the writer, but he says, you know, I, I am a torch filled with gasoline, and when I die, I want it to be all burned out. Right. You know what I mean? So yep. that, that is obviously a fun kind of joie de vivre, live for the moment type attitude. But as far as a shadow, the first thing I thought when you said shadow is, gosh, I've never really been financially responsible. And it's one of those private, awkward things. We don't talk about that, even with our deepest friendships sometimes. So, you know, I can, I can hide that. And, you know, not save enough money and then go into debt and then pay it off and then do it again. And that is all part of this that you know that that shadow um I, I probably didn't answer that in the in the exact way you were looking for but yeah no 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 that, that's okay that's perfect cool thinking back through the years joe from the perspective of your family and friends and colleagues what would you say if you think about the council the type of council or the type of advice that they've sought from you along uh along the way or throughout the years is there a consistent thread oh interesting yeah um so i i do love Mentoring. I love mentoring more than managing, I would say. I'm a great behind-the-scenes coach. Um, and so the advice that people s seek from me um, is, you know, it's, it's almost in line with the, the 
professional pillars that I am responsible for in my job. So for instance, it's reputation. How can I grow my reputation at this place? How can I network? How can I influence people? Um, I have had fluid jobs wherever I've been. I just hate being in a box, you know? Yep. So sometimes people um, seek me out and, and they say, hey, you've managed to create this position for yourself. How did you do that? You know, how, how, do, how do you make, you know, these different opposing people like you and you live in this, this gray area? How do you not die on that hill and still show some type of accountability and be successful, that type of stuff. Yeah, and so thinking about that, what skills do you bring to bear to make that happen? What is it that's happening with, with, with those types of scenarios where you're thriving? Yeah. What are you doing in those scenarios? What is it about you that's, that's, that's making those scenarios work? And what are you, how are you counseling others accordingly? Right. Well, you know, I'd say the number one thing is listening. I have based my personal relationships and my professional relationships on speaking less than being spoken to. Um, so that really helps. It helps for on a number of levels. First of all, you're just being a good person and you're hearing the other person out. You're learning. You're gaining perspective on another part of the, the, you know, the world from that person's eyes. There's a subtle thing that happens, though. When you are listening, you are being silent and you are holding yourself. You're holding yourself in a certain way. Maybe you're not really blinking. Maybe you are listening. Maybe you're nodding a little bit slowly. Maybe you're chiming in every... 90 to 120 seconds restating what they said or helping them pull out an insight. That's why I think I have become this sort of coach or mentor to some people is because of that presence. You know, it's a presence that is a pre when you listen, you say, it's okay. I'm, I'm, I'm a very particular type of person. I'm from California. Um, you can appreciate this being, you know, living in LA, I'm very chill, not very judgmental. Um, I love, I love New York deep in my heart, but I, but I don't love Northeast culture of being direct and, um, you know, a little bit aggressive. Um, you know, that's just how I call it. Obviously there's, it's not, and it's not about quality of people, wonderful people here. But so when you are in the Northeast, when you're in a large company, uh, whether that's large med tech, you know, a suburban conservative company or in a creative fast paced New York agency, Things move very fast. People are direct. You are a little bit of an outlier if you are a little bit slower and more gradual in, in listening with people. So, you know, to your question, that, that's the first thing that comes to mind. Yeah. So you, you're in college. Um, you get this counsel of what it's going to take to be a performer, a musician, or a, yeah. or, or a composer. Um, and you realize that's not you, so you're... Uh, and you have your literature degree, what, what happens next? Okay, so I was in my senior year of college, and I had a friend. I didn't really know what I was going to do. You know, um, I knew I didn't want to stay um, down in L.A. necessarily, and I had spent one summer in New York between my second and third year of college and had a movie summer. I worked at a restaurant in Times Square. Obviously, that's god-awful now, but back then it was really exciting. Um, the first day there, I met this tall blonde from Ohio, and she comes downstairs, and we fall in love instantly, and we have dinners in the village, and I go to her family in Ohio, and it's just this wonderful movie summer, and done, hooked, in love with New York. My main goal was to get to New York. So, I mean, I most of my career decisions have been made trying to fulfill a life vision, not a career vision. So I joined Teach for America, this great, very positive teacher recruitment organization, came, was trained in the Bronx, and taught for a year in the South Bronx, this 22-year-old white kid with all these tough 
Bronx 10-year-olds for a year. So there was, you know, just to step back one point, there was a counselor in college who said, well, most of what people do when they have your degree is they teach or write. Um, almost the next week, I heard a friend say, well, hey, you know, I had a friend move to Brooklyn through this thing called Teach for America. And then I was like, that's my ticket. That's how I can get to New York. Then, you know, I, I went back to California. Uh, wasn't sure what I wanted to do. A little bit, you know, kind of, not restless, but just, you know, kind of floundering and not really sure. Came back to California. I had a few weird jobs. I was an online auction writer for this small startup in California, writing descriptions online of like old antiques, you know, for this auction site. Yep. Um, then I kind of went back to education. Um, I saw a job listing for a, it was a tutoring center. So they had a, an in-person center where kids could go for tutoring. And they also ran after school programs in the Bay area. Did that for about a year. Then, um, a, uh, a friend of mine, uh, actually, she was she was my boss at that tutoring center. We ended up uh, dating and then getting married after that. She knew someone who worked at Stryker. I knew nothing about corporate America, but I still had this indie heart. Remember, I was still in the background thinking I was going to be a novelist. So corporate career sounded the, the anti-opposite, uh, terrible, you know. But being sensible, I went to the interview, and I got a job as a tech writer, writing instructions for use manuals for medical devices uh, in the South Bay. It was just brutally terrible. You know, I remember, I am a huge movie guy, and a lot of my life philosophy comes from movies, so, I'll, you know, in this conversation, I'll give a few examples, but there's a scene in the very first Matrix when he goes to work, and he is in a drab, gray-green cube farm, and it looks just like the seventh rung of hell. That's exactly the feeling I got when I walked into Striker the first time. Right. You know? um, so what I did was that was my tw you know I was tw I was 24. I spent almost every night looking for jobs that whole year. Yeah. Um, because I just didn't like that job, and it took a year or two, but I ended up learning because I needed to learn patience that there were some incredible people at this company. Um, I also knew that they had an office in northern New Jersey. So just like me using Teach for America to get to New York, I used Striker to get back to New York a few years later. Um, so that's when that's when I moved out to New York and worked for the New Jersey-based division of Stryker. Um, and then my career grew from there. I met some wonderful people who mentored and trained me and paved a way for me and gave me chances I didn't really deserve, honestly. You know, we all have people in our lives who, who like, you don't deserve to go on stage and do this random thing or fly to that country and counsel that, you know, leader. But they put me in those positions. And so from 2005 to um, uh, just a few years ago, about three years ago from now, um, I had wonderful experiences and learned like 80% of what I know about uh, career and profession from that time. What was the life vision that brought you, that that put New York in your sights? Uh, yes, 100%. Okay, so it is the movies of the 50s and 60s. It is with guys like Fred Astaire, Bing Crosby. It is James Bond culture. It is, um, you know, Steve McQueen and Thomas Crown Affair. Yep. It is um, most, you know, single guys in 1990s romantic comedies. Um, it is the guy who has a creative job, who has a cool apartment, um, who gets to walk to work in the breeze with the blazer on and the music soundtrack. Um, it is a very precise life vision. Uh, you leave work and you go for drinks with people and you go to East Coast beach locations on the weekends. I have, I mean, it's, it's kind of, I don't know if it's embarrassing to say, but I have a very curated life vision that I achieved just two years ago. I remember when it was. I had the apartment. I had the creative job. I remember I, I, was, I had a crazy night out, and it was like a Tuesday, something totally irresponsible. And I woke up in the morning, and I said, 
my life is perfect. I reached it. You know what I mean? Right. So I just reached it. And I'm still in it. I, I'm not moving from this position anytime soon because I, I have I have I've done it. I made this life that I really wanted from the movies that I saw when I was a kid, essentially. You know? That's what drives me. Yeah, fascinating. So uh so now that you've made it, uh you've you're living this life that you've envisioned. Where do you go from here? What what do you envision happening next? Yeah, yeah, great question because you know, kind of behind that question is when you have one drink, you always want another. And when you have a great dream and you achieve it, there's always another one there. And part of that is just the the beautiful thing about the human condition is that growth is pretty much the only sign of life, you know? And um, so I've been not necessarily resting. I've been doing a lot with career. I've been trying out the hosting stuff on the side. I need to get back into writing. So I'm doing stuff, but I am quote unquote pausing, meaning in my geographic location, I am just so grateful for everything that I have, this immense life of privilege and creativity and friends. So right now I am good. I do have other dreams though. So, you know, I, I mentioned, um, the love of movies, wonderful, wonderful movie I saw in the last few years called the great beauty. And it is about a guy reflecting on his life in Rome. He was a writer. He had a great life. He had this bachelor life. And I saw this movie once and I said, ah, that's what I want. So I have this thing in the back of my mind. I have no plans on leaving my job, which I love, or my city, which I love um, anytime soon. But sometime in the future, I don't know when, you know, a few years or whenever in the future, I want that terrace apartment in Rome with multicultural friends, writers, artists, um, with, with the, you know, Roman ruins in the background and um, tall Italian women with dark hair and espresso and Italian novels that, of course, I'll know how to read because I'll have taken Italian by then. You know what I mean? Yep. So there, there, there is that. But, but again, um, it's that life vision that drives me. Now, from a career sense, 100%. I want to be a host. I want to be a writer. I'd love to start a podcast like you did. Um, I do have career dreams, too. Um, you know, and now that I discovered the career soulmate's uh, path of, of hosting, um, it doesn't have to be on TV. It doesn't have to be super famous. Um, but if I could make a living off of it, that's what I would do. So, you know, those two things are not necessarily tied or even adjacent. They kind of, they kind of exist discreetly. But um, that, that's kind of what's in the back of my mind now when, when you ask that question. So is it, is it fair to say that there's sort of two layers to... Uh to this vision of yours at any moment in time the one layer is kind of this movie driven movie driven vision that's uh, right and then the other layer is 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 this is somewhat this career layer uh what it is you're doing on your daily basis yeah you got it yeah yeah that's pretty fair yeah i have to mention more philosophy there's a one of them is in a great movie called stranger than fiction it's the one with yep. dustin hoffman and um will ferrell you know it's where will ferrell realizes he's a character in a novel and his writer is going to kill him so he goes to dustin, Hoff- dustin hoffman and he says she's going to write my death i'm going to die what should i do and um and you know dustin hoffman says live your life and and uh you know um will ferrell says but but i i only have one, I only have a little bit left, and he says, make it the one you always wanted. And that just rings in my head every day. So, you know, no matter what we're doing, what we have or don't have, or whether we're on top of the world or totally beaten down, you can always make it the one you've always wanted. You know, I just love that. That drives me, like, always, you know. Yeah, and, what, and, and tell me more. What does, that, what does that mean to you to make it the way you always wanted? I love it. Yeah, I love that, that build. I'll tell you exactly what it means. In the movie, Dustin Hoffman gives a few examples. He says... If you want banana pancakes, get banana pancakes, you know? If you want to go kiss the girl, go kiss the girl. In my life, um, 
it means if I want my life to, to be filled with nights out at cocktail bars, do it. If I want to uh, write a short story instead of a novel, do that. Yep. If I want to try to do this thing where I'm freelancing on the side and, and working, do it. If I, if I want um, uh, you know, if I want to curate a certain type of thing or if I want to throw a uh, Mad Men series finale cocktail party, do it. You know, if you, I remember journaling about this a few years ago. I was on, shim, I was on um, vacation, and I like to go up to Cape Cod a lot on vacation. And I, I just remember I wrote, I wrote you know, our biggest, our biggest problem is do we have enough ice, you know? Yep. That's it. That, that's your biggest problem. If you want to buy champagne, buy the champagne. Now, obviously, look, if you, there are consequences to this. You know, I, I happen not to have kids, and I, I hope to someday. Um, I am a single guy, bachelor. Um, th- those are my problems, honestly. I, I'm there for my family. I'm there for my friends. I'm, not a, I'm, not, I'm a good person. But, um, <laughs> you know, I, I, uh, th- I just hear Dustin's, Dustin Hoffman's voice in my head. I, what, I'm, what I mean is I, I have the privilege and I, I happen to have the circumstance Right. Um, and luck to be this person because not all this is from my doing. You know, I was I was kind of born into this great time in the world, and I was able to get to this city. So I, I am grateful for that. But I do have to be humble. Like I'm, I'm not really changing the world here. You know. How does the this uh, movie vision layer does it come into conflict with the other layer, with the day in day out career layer? You know, it really blends. So. The movie layer, let's just say it's a Tuesday night, go out with friends, turns into a late night, get home at midnight or one, um, I had an early morning, get up or tired, walk into the train, the sun is coming up behind the Empire State, and the one layer just bleeds into the other layer, you know what I mean? Um, also, you know, I just, lo- I just love the place where I work. There are such creative and fun people. Um, it's fast-paced, it's chaotic, and, you know, you have to be flexible and willing to change, but... That's part of the layer, you know. The job is part of the the, sure. the the life vision. You know, I did I did a pitch this week. I had a suit on. I felt confident. Um, people didn't hate the ideas, which, as you know, is is beneficial in pitch environments. That's part of the layer. It's it's totally mixed in. Joe, any what would you say have been your biggest career frustrations to date? You know, I joined Ketchum two years ago, and I joined for a very specific reason. It was to be more creative. Um, I remember journaling uh, in the fall in 2013. Um, I always loved my, you know, relationships at Stryker. I loved some of the creative work I was able to do, and I loved what I learned. And most of all, I loved my mentors there. Um, it, you know, it, it's a. It, it wasn't a creative job or a creative place, and so my frustration was was the lack of that. Um, and I would get so frustrated and frustrated at some of my peers and think, I, I don't, I'm embarrassed that you're my peers. I want to be with other people who do what I do better and who have more experience in this so that I can learn. That was a huge, that was a huge frustration. Yep. When did you solidify the idea that, that that's what you want, this idea of being a host? So it was when I told my first joke on stage in, I think it was, was it 2000. Excuse me, 2009 or 2010. It was at Stryker. I we used to work on these big sales meetings. They're the, like the it's it's sort of like the prom, you know. It's all these sales reps. A wonderful hotel. You're I was part of the staff. I ran communications for the meeting, and my good friend at Stryker, she ran um, she ran the event. She ran events for Stryker, and eventually, you know, so she got to help choose who did what at the meeting. And they used to um, hire kind of you know B or C list. TV hosts, like, you know, the guy who did the Travel Channel in Chicago or something, to go do these big awards nights, 1,200 people, a lot of awards, four hours, you know, and tell a few jokes, that type of thing. 
And one year she said, you know, what, what, would you ever consider trying that? You should try that. So she networked for me. She convinced the leaders, um, and I did it. And what I did was I introduced, you know, SNL-type content into the awards nights, um, weekend update, um, impersonation, special guest, opening monologue, that type of stuff. Um, and I, I worked really hard on this one show. Um, a lot of those folks in the audience didn't know me. This is 1,200 people. They are very successful. They're drinking. They're having a great time. You, they don't care. Like, you know, they don't care about you. You have to take their attention. You have to get it. Told the first joke didn't land. And so I'm thinking, I, I don't even, I'm not even sure, you know, why I did this. I had some friends at Stryker who said, this is not good for your career. You need to be a serious communications professional, you know, that type of thing. Um, I told the second joke and it landed. And the, and the crowd went quiet and they, and they, they said, who is this guy? Wait, he's making fun of some executives. He, what? Wait, I'm going to listen right. now. From that, mo that's the moment that answers your question. From that moment, I thought, this is what I am supposed to do. That's amazing. And at that moment, it looking, if you were to look, stand in that moment and look backwards to your uh, childhood, was is there anything that um, would pop up as being contributive? You know, con contributing to that, well, that know, moment. Some of the movies and TV shows and the actual creative content that I saw inspired that. So I loved the show where Frank Sinatra and Dean Martin would bring a bar cart up on stage and they would drink and smoke and sing and make fun of people. I mean, this is, I mean, this is ridiculous. These guys are like, you know, there was almost no structure to the show. Um, so there was a little bit of my onstage persona that refers to that. Um, you know, also just a love of Saturday Night Live, you know, looking back, you know, in the, in the 80s and 90s, that type of thing. Um, but, you know, you're right. There, there's, for instance, there would be way more evidence if I became a musician or a, or a film critic or so. I don't know. Right. Yeah. I mean, a little bit of the hosting, but I can't totally pinpoint what could have been contributory to that. Um, and then, and again, looking forward from the, you know, so now you're sort of in, in possession of these two jobs. You have your 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 kind of full-time day job and you have this other passion yeah. job how do you balance those two and where uh you know given that the hosting one is the one that presumably you'd prefer to be doing sure. 24 7 what what how do you think about it moving yeah. forward um, well you know i have to say one of my favorite things about uh about working where i do now at ketchum is their flexibility you know i've been very open about the shows that i do and um, and uh, loving doing that, and you know, once in a while there might be an event, an event that um, comes up either for a client or, or in the catch office, and they'll throw me the opportunity, and I'll host it. And you know, it, the two don't really come into conflict in a timing sense. Most of these shows are on the weekend. I, I don't do that many. I do a few a year, you know. Um, but also, they, they've talked to me and said, "How could we work this into either what we do for clients or what we do here or across the larger network of companies that we're a part of. Um, so that, that has some great potential. Yeah. You know, they, they've been really awesome about that. Um, you know, the other thing too is that a lot of the advice I've gotten from people who are in the industry, quote unquote, meaning either have a podcast or are on TV or, you know, I've talked to some of these folks, um, is that you should just create content on the side. For instance, the number one thing I hear is, oh, well, just start a YouTube channel and, you know, post a video every week. Well, that's a lot of work, right. you know. And yeah, yeah, the day job is a lot. And remember, I'm a big life vision person. So I instantly think, 
wait, I have like four social things a week. I don't want to cut those out to, you know, to stay home, right. bite, and then produce right. this content all day Saturday, go film it, and then edit it all day Sunday. Like, I, you know, the fire doesn't burn for that. Um, so, you know, I think that networking is a big part of how I'm um, going to build uh, my future in that specific um, um, with that with the hosting thing. Also, you know, the beautiful thing is, I was just talking to my boss about this the other day, and she was like, you know, the, the great thing is about the hosting is that you don't have to leave your day job, which you do like, to go do it. So I can still do it on the weekends, you know. Like the, I just did a show last week, early last week in Arizona. Um, I had the winter break to work on content, and I just did it nights and weekends. I yep. dialed down the social, dialed up the working. But remember, I love those hours. I love staying up late working on content for those shows. So for right now, I'm going to do both yeah. parallel paths. I really believe that at some point, somewhere, I'm going to be doing a show. Someone in the audience is going to say, hey, I know someone at this network or this outlet or this, you know, I don't know, podcast or something. Um, that, that's a little bit romantic and, you know, counting on fate and destiny. I, I need to do a lot of proactive networking before that. But you know how it is. Life is crazy like that. I, I think it's going to happen. So there is some struggle between this life vision, this movie-driven life vision, and this career aspect, For right? Sure. I mean, you're, you are, you are, you are making decisions, social, you know, do I, do I go out? Do I do yeah. that YouTube video? Yeah. You're, to, you're totally right. Yeah. It's, it's at, um, they are, they are at odds and that's just a very classic work play thing. You know what I mean? Um, yep. you know, you don't write a novel by, uh, having a job going out every night and never going home to write, you know, and you don't start a YouTube channel <laughs> right, right. by not doing that. You're absolutely right. So what I have started to do was, you know, leaving Stryker, coming to catch him, that was one step in this direction. Let's say it's step one of ten. You know, certainly not one of three. Um, you know, coming to catch him, building great relationships there, talking to a lot of people. I talk about it constantly. I share my clips from shows, just trying to get the word out a little bit. And also I get good advice from people, you know. Um, and maybe that's – so I'm, yep. I, I'm at like step two of ten. And I, step three is probably – doing more of this on the side, trying to network to get more work to do versus just do it on a YouTube channel and try to get discovered. So that's probably what step three is for me, you know. And, and what's, uh, by the way, during your time at Stryker, what was, what was the catalyst that sort of started opening up all these opportunities? Um, well, yeah, it was, it was you know, a, a mentor that I had that always got involved in these big events. Yep. And then it really was just my one friend who ran all these meetings who put me up for it. And she said, if I convince the leaders, would you want to do this? And I said, sure. Last question here, Joe. Knowing what you know today about your career, how would you, or how the, you know, your career and life vision, um, given how they've both unfolded, how would you advise your younger self? Mm, great, great question. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, Okay, so let me think. I am. I would go back to probably my 24-year-old striker self. Um, you know, I would probably counsel myself that there is great stuff behind seemingly drab front doors. You know, it's that concept of things are not always what they appear. Um, companies of companies of size. You know, if you join a startup with 50 people, that's awesome. But you got to be, you know, devoted to the cause because. Eventually, you're going to meet all those people and, and know them. I work for a company of 25,000 people. They're probably up to 30 by now. I have met, I met so many amazing people, so I would have gone back to myself. My first day at Stryker instead, quit your bitching. This is a, an amazing company. Who cares that you, you are not connected to the cause necessarily or that it is more corporate than you like? There are some amazing people here that are going to help you unlock um, – 
yourself, basically, and what you really want to do. That yeah. is worth every day and hour that you spend at this place. You know, all the work, all the hours, that you know, the manuals I wrote, the medical papers that I edited, the employee communications I wrote, and the, you know, the other executive stuff that I did there. All that matters less than what the people there taught me. That's what I would have told myself, probably. Like, chill out. You are lucky to be here. Some of the most talented people you'll ever meet are here, you know. So try to humble myself a little bit. Fantastic piece of advice. Joe Cooper. Fantastic oh, interview. Thank you, you for uh, thank you for taking great the time. <laughs> awesome. Thank you for tuning into this episode of Our Authentic Careers with me, your host, Gert Sabar. If you like what you just heard, I hope you'll let your family, friends, and colleagues know all about this little podcast. And since it's early days here at the OAC, your rating, and especially your review of the show on iTunes would also be hugely helpful and very much appreciated. If you think you or someone you know would be a great guest, please, 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 please don't hesitate to reach out at ourauthenticcareers.com.